0: What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half arts history this week on the agenda. Going to be having a chat about the Order of Assassins. Uh, You may heard of these. uh, You may heard of this group, also known as the Nizari Ismaili. Uh, This was an Islamic sect that relied on on subterfuge, on cunning, uh, and of course, just a whole lot of horrible murder uh, to achieve its aims throughout the uh, the 12th and 13th centuries. Uh, established at the end of the 11th century in modern-day Iran, the Assassins uh, spread their their political and religious influence throughout much of the Levant, uh, all the way from the Caspian Sea to the Mediterranean Sea, and they were very, very active in the politics of the time as a as a feared and infamously deadly group of killers. Uh, who they were able to withstand enmity from enormously powerful opponents. Uh, you know, both both close to home and further uh, further away. A lot of misconceptions about the assassins, a lot of misconceptions about them, everything from their name, to their purpose, to their activities, um, but there are very good reasons for these misconceptions, there's very good reasons, that, you know, today we have a, a very uh, sort of skewed perspective of what the assassins are all about. Um, the first of these reasons is that, the, probably the most important one, is that the assassins pissed a lot of people off throughout their uh, throughout their existence. Um, So most of the writing, most of the resources that we have on the assassins frames them in a very negative light uh, because it was written, again, by their enemies. So, it was you know, they they were definitely distorting the image of of the assassins, whether it was rival Muslims or crusading Christians. Um, And secondly, their portrayal in popular media, and I'm not just talking about like 21st century media either, right? I'm talking about media, you know, going all the way back to Dante Alighieri, right? Um, Their their portrayal in entertainment media has… uh, been very highly sensationalized uh, with the sect either being demonized or romanticized and, or just generally you know again distorted in some way to uh, to to thrill and entertain or uh, or, or frighten people um but uh, yes this 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 is not a new phenomenon there's not a new phenomenon you know, i'm not talking just talking about assassin's creed in the 21st century it goes all the way back to marco polo dante alighieri um people told these fanciful and fictionalized tale of tales of these mountaintop killers and Today what we're going to do is we're going to try to pick apart the truth from the legends. Uh, but again, bear in mind that more or less all the historical writings that we have about the assassins were heavily biased, um, or, or at least overtly sensationalised, or both, actually in, in many cases. Um, for example, the assassins did not specifically target crusading Christians; they killed way more Muslims than Christians, way way more. Um, um, and another another very common misconception is their name. It probably probably doesn't come from uh, you know this all these supposed stories you hear about them uh uh, their their drug use you know they're not they weren't bloody tooting on bugues every day uh but there is a lot to get across a lot to get across a lot to, to get across today uh, have a chat about uh you know the founding of the order right through to its downfall almost 200 years later and of course the lasting impact that this group of islamic outcasts has had on history so let's get to it here. let's have a chat about the nazari ismaili uh better known as the the order of assassins and learn and uh, learn what they're all about here we go so we're going all the way back here all the way back not not actually to 1090 when the nazari ismaili state was uh, was officially founded we're going back long before that. We're going all the way back to 632 CE, that is, to the death of Muhammad, uh, the founder of Islam. Uh, we're, we're, mate, we're not mucking about. We, you, you, you get the whole story. We're, we're, we're going back a long way here. So, Muhammad bloke, reasonably famous, probably heard of him. Um, uni- he unites Arabia into a single political entity. He got the Quran going. He founded the Islamic religion, obviously. But he also died without an heir, right? Uh, and this caused a bit of a stir uh, because, because he died without an heir, this actually split the, uh, the young religion into various factions, factions who all supported a different successor for Muhammad. So, for example, there were the Sunnis, who backed a bloke named Abu Bakr. This was uh, Muhammad's uh, father-in-law. There were the Shiites, who backed a bloke named Ali ibn Abi Talib, who was Muhammad's son-in-law. Um, the long story short, essentially, is that the Sunnis won, uh, Abu became the caliph, and the Sunni-Shiite rivalry kicked off good and proper from this point onwards. The Shiites were the minority, but as Islam expanded uh, in the coming centuries, Shiites, uh, uh, Shiism was the the more popular flavor of Islam in newly conquered, uh, con- conquered non-Arab lands, right? But there are more layers yet, because in the 8th century, a subsect of Shiism emerged. So there's not only a subsection of Islam, but there's also subsections of, subsects of those sects already. So... We're going down two layers now to a subsect, a sub-subsect, I guess, known as the Ismaili. Now, the Ismaili, they ended up setting shop in northern, uh, setting up shop in northern Africa. They established the Fatimid Caliphate in 909, and uh, 60 years later, in 969. They'd expanded so far to have conquered Egypt, and they founded a new city in Egypt on the Nile, and they named it the Conqueror, or in Arabic Al qahira which is known today uh, to the Western world as, of course, Cairo. Now the Fatimids they did uh, they did good; they were doing pretty well for a good while there. Um, but by the time we get to the, the 11th century, when our story about the Assassins kicks off, they're not going so hot. Another. Sect has emerged to supplant them now, um, and, and and is going gangbusters uh, further out east. A newly converted Turkic tribe from Central Asia, who were known as the Seljuks. Now, the Seljuks they were they were Sunnis, and they took control of Baghdad in ten fifty five, and they became the dominant Islamic sect as the Ismailis continued to dwindle from from there on outwards. And it was with this backdrop that uh, we begin our story of the assassins properly with an Ismaili missionary from Persia, whose name was Hassan-e-Sabah. Uh, he was working in Cairo, and he left Cairo to do missionary work throughout this Seljuk-dominated Persia. And he had a surprising amount of success, too. He was running against the political and religious orthodoxy of the region. He accrued quite a number of followers as he cut about Persia spreading the, uh, the word of Ismaili Islam. So much so that he, he bolstered and strengthened Another new Islamic subsect, a sub-sub-subsect by now, called the Nizari Ismaili. So he, he, he's gone about with his followers. He's, he's, he's spreading the good word of, uh, of Ismailism and, and, and beginning this uh, this new, as we say, sub-sub-subsect, the Nizari Ismaili. But uh, this area that he's cutting about, and remember, is dominated by the Sunni Seljuks, and they're none too pleased with this upstart and his fanatically loyal followers going about. Because he is leading essentially what is a revolutionary movement. It is a religious movement, but, you know, religion and politics were so very closely entwined uh, at, at this point that there's really no difference. And he is, he's having people flock to his side, workers, craftsmen, people who are, you know, unhappy with Seljuk governance throughout, uh, throughout Persia, throughout this area. The oppression of Shiites throughout Seljuk lands shepherded more and more political dissidents towards Hassan and his movement until he was leading what ended up being quite a sizable resistance force, relatively speaking. And at this point he realised, right, um, uh, Hassan realised that he might be in danger of of a a very strong reaction from the Seljuks. And so he, 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 he worked out that he had to actually, you know, do something to secure the safety of the people that he was leading. So he sought out... A secure location for a base of operations. And he settled on a castle, a mountaintop fortress called Alamut Castle, uh, north of Tehran in the mountain ranges up there. Now this fortress, virtually impregnable, right at the top of a mountain, huge big thick walls, little village outside or whatever else, but this village this this castle was not one that could be taken by force. So Hassan did not attempt to attack it. he did not capture it with main force. no, instead, he infiltrated the castle with his converts, right. He sent these followers in, settled them in the village near the castle. He ingratiated himself with many of the soldiers who were in the castle themselves, you know, preying upon their dissatisfaction with the leaders, with their rulers, whatever else, and generally using his silver tongue to win them over to his side. And then in 1090 after, uh, after many you know after a long time of patiently building up uh, the, uh, you know, the, the level of trust that people had from in this area and the level of influence that he had over you know key operatives within the castle. In 1090, he finally made his move, and he took the castle. He seized the castle without a single drop of blood. No violence whatsoever. Subterfuge, chicanery, these these covert operations, they were enough to have him seize Alamut Castle without a single person dying. And so the Nizari Ismaili, they set up shop there, establishing what is effectively the Nizari Ismaili state that would become known to history as the Order of Assassins. And I'll tell you what. This isn't the only castle that Hassan captured in this way either, because after establishing himself and his order in Alamut Castle, Hassan orchestrated the capture of many other mountaintop fortresses throughout the region with exactly the same methods. He would cleverly, covertly win over the local people again until he was able to seize the castles without bloodshed. You know, this wasn't a time of open warfare. These castles weren't as strongly defended. They didn't have their gates locked down as tight as you might have thought. And this is the, this is the, the, the sort of backdrop. This is the atmosphere that, uh, that Hassan was able to take advantage of. Again, with his silver tongue, with his, uh, with his political and religious religious agenda, he had people moving to his side. And so he managed to capture all of these castles, I'm not going to say effortlessly, but without any bloodshed, which is, which is you know, quite an achievement. Um, still, you know, for all of the defensive of the defensive power of these castles, the nascent Nizari Ismaili state lacked an army. It didn't have any wide sweeping control of the land surrounding its strongholds, and it was for, it was for reasons like these that Hassan instead focused on exerting a different kind of power—a shadowy, furtive, and clandestine power, which we'll come to in a second. So Hassan has essentially captured a string of fortresses across the uh, across the Persian mountains here and has established it's it's difficult to call it a nation state but that because in our in our sort of modern conception of what that involves it doesn't really live up to that criteria but it, it was it was a scattered set uh, a scattered series of fortresses that all had a a common unity a common purpose uh, a common goal and even though on a map it would look a little bit weird to you know color in these castles as being their own nation that is effectively what they were, and they had Hassan at uh, at the helm, who, as I say, began a, a radically different approach to exerting power than you might expect from from the leader of, you know, what was effectively a country, albeit a very small and and, and weirdly scattered one. So, once the Nazar Niz- uh, Ismaili had a string of, of fortresses uh, stretching across the Elber's Mountains, they were well and truly established. And knowing that they would never have a chance against the Seljuks on a battlefield. The Nizari Ismaili instead focused on training highly skilled, fanatically loyal operatives who would be sent out to kill high-profile targets and bring about ruin to political enemies in this way, rather than, you know, full-scale battles. And of course, these operatives, as I'm sure you've already guessed, and the sect to which they belong, became known... As the assassins. Now, before we go any further and actually talk about what these people did, uh, I want to ter- talk about this term "assassin" and and its origin because it's a matter of debate, uh, even t- even to this day. The popular story, which you've probably heard behind the term "assassin," of course, is that it comes from the Persian term "hashish" or "hashishin," uh, which refers to the, uh, the 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 drug, the psycho drug hashish. And there are lurid tales of these operatives, you know, smoking hashish in preparation for their missions. But it's not certain that there's much truth behind these stories. Remember most of the information that we have about the assassins was written by their enemies and you know the drug angle I guess was often used to disparage these uh, this group as as stories of the assassins emerged. Um what's more the term hashishi could also be used as as a general insult in a in a more figurative sense similar to something like junkie you know a a a, a vagabond a, a cast out you know someone who wasn't worth very much. So the likelihood that the assassins were actually all, you know, ripping dank bong hits before they went out to murder people is is disputed, to say the least. But uh, in using uh, Hashishi as a pejorative term, the stage was set for later historians to leap on this drug angle, I guess you'd call it. And so this was the story that lived throughout history because it was interesting. It was lurid. It was sensational. It was, uh, it was very engaging, you know, just despite the lack of concrete evidence for it. Um, historical historians, they were more than happy to uh, to spread it despite the fact that it almost certainly wasn't true. Anyway, irrespective of where the term came from, today, it doesn't mean what it did back then. This is the other really interesting thing. The term has evolved and changed meaning or or at least expanded its meaning, right? Because the word assassin used to mean a member. Of this radical Islamic sect, right? Particularly the covert killers that were that were trained by it. You know, it just referred to a member of the Nizari Ismaili. But today, obviously, an assassin is a professional, a professional killer of any kind, you know, usually someone who goes after high-value targets, often politicians. So the etymology of the modern meaning of the word assassin is clear, even if the original etymology isn't, isn't fully understood. So as stories of these Merciless killers spread to Europe from the Levant over time. The, the, the term assassin was adopted into various European languages, not just to mean these, you know, this, not just refer to this as Islamic subsect, but any covert killer who went after high value targets. And it, it, it wormed its way not into just, you know, English, of course, as we, as we know the word assassin, but into also all sorts of other languages. For example, Spanish, assassin is the root of the Spanish word for murder, assassinato. So it is pretty remarkable. I reckon that one small religious offshoot would go on to influence the languages of far-off nations over the centuries, but that's exactly what happened. And I guess the question we have to answer now is why? Why is it that the Assassins are so famous or so so infamous really, and and what did they do to secure this legacy, this historical, this uh, cultural, religious, political and, you know, linguistic legacy? Uh, ...that they have today. So, to to do this, let's head back now to the end of the 11th century... ...to the founding of the Nazari Ismaili State and the Order of the Assassins. hassan I saba uh, who became known as the Old Man of the Mountain... ...he was a clever, he was a very, very clever and a very canny leader. He knew that the lack of extensive land holdings or, or the lack of a proper army... ...would present significant obstacles to waging a conventional resistance against the Seljuks. So, his approach, as I mentioned, instead was subterfuge, sabotage, and, of course, murder, done by these highly trained, fanatically loyal killers that were were prepared to martyr themselves for the cause. And as we head into the 12th century, Hassan was expanding the political influence of the assassins in two different ways, principally. He sent missionaries out west to other potential strongholds and castles, hoping to win them over to his cause, and he sent assassins out into the Seljuk Empire to murder high-ranking people. These assassins, they used cunning and deceit to infiltrate their target's confidence. uh, They waited patiently for the opportune moment and then struck decisively when the time was right. Nizari Ismaili agents, or assassins, they were sent to murder generals, priests, governors, even people in the highest echelons of the the Seljuk government's advisors and, and, and viziers. Under Hassan, around 50 Seljuks met their deaths at the wrong end of an assassin's dagger, and the constant unending threat of assassination through the empire's top brass into disarray. They would go about, they were so worried about the assassins attacking them after you know as the body count mounted, the, uh, the the you know the big cheeses of the Seljuk Empire would go around with chainmail shirts on under their outer garments, a tempest of paranoia and panic that enveloped them completely. The assassins seemed to be everywhere and nowhere at the same time. The assassins would uh, very deliberately, usually strike in public, in full view of, of as many people as possible. You know, they wanted to, to cause a scene, draw attention to themselves, intimidate other potential targets uh, when when they were actually, you know, doing the deed. Um, and, and the people who were murdered, uh, the, the reason for, for them being killed was usually well-known. They were either those who uh, advocated strong action against that should be taken against the Ismaili or, uh, conversely, in retribution for those who had actually taken the fight to the Ismaili or those allied to them. The killings were almost always carried out with simple daggers. Uh, often the assassins would remain hidden to the target for, for for some time. So, you know, they couldn't carry around huge, big weapons or, or stashes of poison or anything because often they would weasel their way very close to the target and sometimes gain the confidence of the target uh, himself, you know. And, uh, occasionally you know they'd use things like poison um, but uh, it didn't create the same scenes of shock and panic that the assassins sought to create so usually it was just uh, it was just a very simple dagger that the assassins would use after having snuck their way into the uh, you know the, the inner circle or the confidence or at least into the into the path of, uh, of their target and after the killings um, any assassins who were caught and many of them were uh, they gave away very little. In the way of useful information, even under torture, they were very successful in pursuing Hassan's aims of disrupting and resisting Sunni rule throughout the region without actually compromising the Nazari Ismaili. And uh, this really speaks to, again, this fanatical loyalty that was bred into them, as we'll, we'll come to in a second. Court assassins faced... Grizzly and and horrible deaths. Uh, one assassin who had disguised himself as a beggar waited outside the uh, the Grand Mosque of Damascus for a certain uh, Seljuk nobleman to pass, and the assassin, you know, came up as a dressed as this beggar and uh, begged for alms off of this nobleman, and then while this bloke was uh, distracted, he grabbed him by the belt and gutted him with a dagger. The assassin was caught. He was tortured. He was beheaded, and he was his, his remains were burnt. But he never even confirmed that he'd been sent by the Nizari Ismaili. Such was the unwavering loyalty that the order inspired. I mean, conversely, I guess it's possible that this bloke wasn't even from the assassins, but even that, right, goes to show how pervasive and how insidious the political and religious influence of this order was. The fact that when there was a potentially unrelated killing, they were still. Uh, it was still attributed to them. It was still attributed to the to the Nazari Ismaili. And, you know, there's no certainty in any of these things because of the nature of the work done by many of the assassins. But almost every suspicious murder in this time period was attributed to the assassins, which only helped to, uh, you know, to continue to, to uh, raise their, their, their power and their profile as, as political actors. And that's exactly what uh, Hassan was hoping to do. So the assassins' approach to fighting this war, I mean, if you, if you can even call it that, their approach to resisting the, the Sunni Seljuks uh, was enormously defensive, I guess you could say, because they sent out these operatives to sow chaos. You know, that there'd be targeted strikes on key figures. There wouldn't be mass deaths and they wouldn't be fighting battles. They were, they were killing specific people in order to, uh, to destabilise and sow chaos amongst this regime. And then after this, they would just remain holed up in their impregnable castles on top of mountains broadly safe from retaliation. And these strongholds only grew in number into the 12th century. I mentioned before that Hassan uh, began to expand Azari Ismaili influence out west towards the Mediterranean by sending out missionaries. And using the same underhanded techniques of trickery and subterfuge, the Order of Assassins captured more and more castles and fortresses and spanned a rough line from the Caspian to the Mediterranean. Now, you know, these strongholds were relatively isolated. But it didn't stop them from being united in purpose, as I said before. Their political, their religious goals were chased down with ferocious determination and a real unity of purpose. Despite the lack of the traditional trappings of a nation, borders and army and stuff like that, the Nizari Ismaili were very much a state. They were a political and religious organisation that, while scattered in territory, was anything but scattered in direction and purpose. And so it was that they pushed westward, and interestingly, this westward push coincided with another very important historical event that was taking place in the Levant at the time, of course, the Crusades and the Christian settlement of Jerusalem in 1099. Often, the assassins are portrayed as the mortal foes of the, uh, of the crusading Christians, you know, sending their operatives to murder and sow chaos amongst Christian leaders and commanders. And, you know, while more than a few Christians went out to hang with Jeezy Crazy a little bit earlier than they might have expected, thanks to the assassins, broadly speaking, the assassins killed way more muslims so many more muslims than they did christians more generally the nizari ismaili considered the christians the, the crusaders who were you know trying to set up shop in this part of the world to be Kind of irrelevant to their overall plan to further their religious ambitions of resisting the Sunnis. And, and more than once, the assassins actually allied themselves with the crusaders when it was convenient because they had a common enemy. You know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, all of that sort of stuff. The crusaders were also fighting Sunni Muslims, just as the assassins were. And so the two groups actually had a, a, you know, a little bit in common. But their contact with the crusading Europeans. Led to many of the stories and the misconceptions that we commonly hear about the assassins today. It's important to note here that you know even though the relationship, the historical relationship between uh, the crusaders and the assassins was was you know not hugely acrimonious, it was certainly painted as such. Again, in specifically entertainment media throughout the 13th century onwards. Here, so before we continue out with our story of the. The actual story of the assassins, the the actual factual historical story. I want to pause a bit here and tell you some of the some of the ridiculous and fanciful tales that emerged from this time period, and how some of these these misconceptions were given credit by people of the time, and obviously evolved to 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 what we believe about the assassins today. There is, like anything, a fair bit of uncertainty um, about all of this, but. Uh, Broadly speaking, the stuff that I'm going to talk about now does not seem to have any real basis, in fact. So let's have a talk about some of the misconceptions, the common misconceptions about the assassins and and sort of maybe, you know, again, separate the truth from the fiction here one of the the great mysteries of the uh, of the assassins that, that even today we actually haven't answered properly is exactly what Hassani Sabah and uh, many and you know the assassin leaders that came after him what these leaders did to inspire such fierce and undying loyalty amongst the followers amongst amongst these these men who would hit, then then be sent out to you know to, to kill on murder for the sake of the uh, Nazari Ismaili, we don't know what uh, what Hassan did in order to inspire such uh, such loyalty. And there was a lot of speculation that was done about it at the time as well, because it did remain a, a closely guarded secret. And wouldn't you know it? this speculation eventually became so accepted uh, that today you'll hear it spouted off as truth. So, for example, the uh, the whole uh, the origin of the whole hashish drug thing, right? It, it may have come about uh, from a story told about Hassan, uh that sought to explain at least how he would win these followers over so for, this is this is what was t- it's almost certainly not true but this is what uh, this is how the story went Hassan would uh he would use the drug he would use Hashish to uh to essentially drug a you know a likely follower uh, up to his eyeballs so he was absolutely incoherent you know till he didn't know what was going on he'd be, he'd be hopped up on goofballs and, and and he'd be out of his head mate and while uh, while he was off his head like this, he would be taken into a beautiful, lush garden, right? And there, a bunch of women would uh, do all sorts of oh, just oh, sinful and lustful things to him while he was uh, while he was off his trolley in this way. And uh, while he was in this condition, Hassan would approach him, right, and and claim he would he would come in and tell this bloke that this was a sneak preview of the ordained place in paradise that he could earn for himself. You know, a little, little free trial period for him, but of course got to sign up for the uh, to get the full membership. So once the follower recovered from this, uh, you know, this paradisiacal uh, ordeal, Hassan would then say, oh, mate, did you enjoy that? I mean, I bet you bloody did. The only way you're ever going to get to experience such heavenly pleasure again is to become an assassin and martyr yourself for the cause. Now, this story sounds a bit ridiculous, and that is because it is. Um, the story actually came to Europe thanks to none other than Marco Polo, uh, who wasn't even around in Hassan's time. He died in Hassan died in 1124. Polo was born in 1254, so over a hundred years between uh, these two blokes ever being ever being on the earth there together. Uh, the story was, you know, second or third or fourth hand by the time that Marco Polo heard it. You reckon? But it's one of the stories that uh, that really caught on and and people accepted it happily because I mean I mean why wouldn't they It's sensational It's lurid It go It you know It's about these shadowy mysterious order of uh, of assassins atop their mountains and you know It's the sort of thing that people just again didn't let the truth get in the way of a good story Another one uh, uh, Another fanciful story about the way that Hassan tricked people into becoming assassins uh, goes like this and this one's even more ridiculous has this so apparently Hassan would um, he'd get one of his followers who was who was in on the dupe, who was in on the trick, and he would bury him up to his neck and then splash blood around where this bloke was buried around you know sort of around the base of his neck on the ground there. So it looked like this bloke was just a decapitated head sitting on the ground. And then on Hassan's instruction, right, um a new follower would be brought to this decapitated head. And Hassan would give the signal, and the head would begin to talk to this, you know, this this likely follower, the person who was, you know, Hassan was looking to trick, and, uh, and, and tell him, oh, mate, it's bloody brilliant, you know, I got killed, I'm up in this heavenly paradise, bloody love it here, girls all over the place, mate, can't get enough of it, so this, you know, you... you that was the that was the base of the trick. A, a decapitated te- head would tell you about the paradise that awaited. You know, give the Hassan this sort of mystical aura as being able to speak to you know speak to the de- commune with the dead. There, maybe that was enough to to convince you. But if it wasn't, if it wasn't, Hassan had that one covered too, because just in case you thought it was a trick, and just in case you thought, well, this head isn't actually decapitated; it's still attached to a body, Hassan would then secretly have the buried kill, uh, the buried blow killed and decapitated, and his head would be put on a pike that the follower would then see a little bit later, so as to make the trick all the more convincing. And again, sounds like the sort of story what someone just made up one time, and I think that is probably true. I don't know why Hassan had so many disposable followers that he could afford to kill one just in order to create a new one. Uh, and look, these are you know, two or many stories that came from the history of this organisation, all largely apocryphal, but they worked, they worked, and these, spread, these stories, they entered the public consciousness from the Middle East to Europe and they spread, um, and they spread far and wide. And any way you slice it, the the separation of the truth from the fiction within the story of the Assassins is is a little tricky, you know. Principally because there is so much nonsense nonsense flying around about these Assassins due to their shadowy, legendary reputation both the Christian and the Islamic worlds at the time, uh, and because this order was was cloaked in mystery and, and secrecy and, and struck from the shadows, and the fact that they inspire, they struck fear and terror to the hearts of their foes so much of what is written about them is fanciful is is exaggerated is filled with with, with demonizing rhetoric that that paints them as uh, as these evil villains that had supernatural powers that explained uh, you know explained the, the the way that they were everywhere and nowhere at the same time anyway it's enough of that Let's move back to what we do know about the Assassins for sure. Let's move back to the world of the historically verifiable, or at least, if we can't get the verifiable, at least the historically reasonable. I've already talked about how most of the records of the Assassins are biased and unreliable, but we can still pull together a decent sketch of this organisation as time passed. Hassani Sabah was responsible for much of the success of the Order in its opening years, but of course he died, as I said, in 1124 at the age of 73 or 74. Um this one bloke had established a, I mean he established a striking legacy as the founder of the order, order of the assassins but the Nizari Ismaili, they weren't even close to finish yet. Hassan was succeeded by a series of other assassin leaders who staved off advances made by the sunnis. Assassinations continued uh, as the sect uh, as the sect continued to to fight their seljuk enemies but we don't have the most complete records of their activities until we move into the period surrounding the second crusade in the middle of the 12th century. In 1152, the Assassins took down their first Christian target during this crusade, a bloke named Raymond II of Tripoli. Uh, Raymond had granted uh, land to the Knights Templar near the Assassins' Territory. Uh, Raymond was murdered along with his escort by a group of assassins near one of the city gates of Tripoli, and in doing so, he became the first ever Christian to be killed by the Order. They were still fiercely resisting the Sunnis wherever they could, but they also held their own against the Christians, and in 1152, they finally struck, as I say, their first Christian target, Raymond II. But he wasn't the last. He wasn't the last. In April 1192, uh, Conrad of Montferrat had uh, just been elected King of Jerusalem. The kingdom had been established in 1099 during the First Crusade, and Conrad had married its queen, Isabella I., but only days after his election, however, he was murdered by a pair of assassins who disguised themselves as Christian monks. They managed to trick the Archbishop of Tyre as to who they were. Uh, this aided them in gaining access to Conrad, and they approached him one as he was walking home one night, and they attacked him just days after he'd been confirmed as king. Now, Conrad fought back ferociously and actually managed to kill one of the assassins, but uh, the other did manage to inflict wounds on him that that ultimately killed him. Uh, But this assassin was also captured. He didn't manage to make a a getaway and he was tortured for information. Uh, And while Conrad died of his wounds, the surviving assassin only muddied the waters further by claiming that Richard the Lionheart had been behind the killing. And this is the reason that Richard was arrested and held prisoner in the Holy Roman Empire, as you heard about in episode 134. But, while we're on the subject of talking about the most famous uh targets of the order of the uh, order of order of assassins over the years you know and as i say we don't have the most complete record of of all of the uh of all of the killings that they uh, that they undertook and we don't have a great understanding of of, of you know a lot of the uh, uh this, i guess the, the day-to-day life of the people living up in those mountaintop fortresses because there was so much shadowy uh, secrecy that uh that, that you know ensconced this, uh, this organization. We do certainly know right the story of the most notable, the most significant target that the assassins ever went after, and it was none other than Saladin, or Saladin as he's commonly known to the West. Saladin, as you may know, he led the Muslim campaigns against the crusader states towards the end of the 12th century, and he was ultimately successful in recapturing cities like Jerusalem from the Christians. But he had other foes to contend with. He wasn't just fighting Christians. He was, of course, fighting other Muslims. The assassins uh, sent operatives after him to kill him twice, but on both occasions, they failed in 1175 and in 1176 two separate groups of assassins were sent to murder Saladin as he was ravaging lands that were controlled by the Nizari Ismaili as he took the fight to the crusaders throughout Syria now the Nizari Ismaili weren't going to let this stand they weren't going to let them you know them they weren't going to let their order be collateral damage for this anti-crusader campaign that uh, that Saladin was uh, you know was putting together here And so the leader of the assassins in Syria, a bloke whose name was Rashid ad-Din Sinan, also very confusingly also referred to as the old man of the mountain, or old man of the mountain sometimes, he was determined to fight the Sunni Saladin, and so he sent his agents to kill him. However, they were entirely unsuccessful. The first group of 13 assassins didn't even get near Saladin, while the second group, a smaller group, they caused him some superficial injuries. Apparently they managed to slash his cheek. Uh, before they were were cut down and killed by Saladin's guards. Now, Saladin was not going to take this lightly. Obviously, he wasn't going to take attempts on his life uh, lying down. And so he turned his wrath towards the assassins after these attempts on his life. He besieged the Syrian assassin uh, stronghold of Masyaf for a week. He lay siege to one of these impregnable mountaintop fortresses. But for some reason, after a week, he lifted the siege and he moved on. And to this day, we don't know, we don't have a proper explanation for why Saladin actually gave up on besieging Masyaf. There are obviously, obviously, I don't need to tell you, there are plenty of stories about him, you know, finding an assassin's dagger under his pillows, or, you know, the assassin's covertly delivering him poisoned cakes without him noticing, stuff like that, all probably nonsense. But what is true is that Saladin packed up and lifted the siege, right, after a week, uh, and we just don't have a full explanation as to why uh, historians have suggested that Sinan and Saladin actually put their differences aside uh, and and decided that the the threat of the Crusaders the, the you know the Christian forces in the area was a bigger was a bigger threat uh, something that they needed to deal with and, and so they wanted to work together. But we may never know certainly what uh, with any certainty what happened whether these men met whether they you know formally signed a non-aggression pact or, or what it was. But certainly whatever happened. After this encounter with the assassin, Saladin did beef up his personal security after the assassination attempts. He was much more careful about letting people he didn't recognize anywhere near him. And, you know, while that sounds reasonable, there's also a story of Saladin from that point onwards sleeping in a wooden tower that was built and then broken down and carried around and then built again for him to sleep in wherever he went about. So, I mean, it's tough to say what's actually real. I don't know if Saladin spent the rest of his life sleeping in a portable wooden tower, but that's what people say. Anyway, Rashid ad-Din Sinan, he's up there with Hassani Sabah as one of the most famous and influential assassin leaders. He, he led the Nazar Ismaili all the way uh, until his death in 1193, the same year Saladin died actually. Um, but after his death, unfortunately, for this order, the uh, the assassins began, uh, they entered into a, a slow decline. As we move now into the 13th century, in 1210 specifically, the assassins actually turned on their original campaign to fight against Sunni Muslims. And instead, they allied themselves with their old foes under the leadership of uh, Hassan Third. They had cut all ties with the Ismaili Fatimids in Egypt and the, you know all of the the political and religious goals upon which the order was founded, they were a long way in the rear view by the time we get into the 13th century. Under Hassan II, unlike his, uh, his, his predecessor that shared his name, uh, this bloke was happy to ally the order with the uh, with the Sunnis, with, with the Seljuks. and uh, the, the order, again, as I say, it spiraled into uh, it spiraled into oblivion. Under the leadership of Hassan and, and, and the blokes that came after him, uh, they suffered defeat at the hands of attacking Christians during the Sixth Crusade in the 1220s. And while they did uh, remain at least somewhat politically relevant in Syria all the way through to the 1250s, it was around then that a new threat emerged from the east and uh, some of you may you know already have guessed what was the ultimate downfall of the order of the assassins considering that let me just oh let me just check the clock here yes that's right we're halfway through the 13th century it's about time for a certain a certain group of marauding horsemen from central asia to turn up that's right it's the mongols the Mongols, who whose historical impact is so far-reaching, the you know the the we've talked about them a lot on this podcast, and right now in twelve in the twelve fifties they were attacking Khwarezmia, of course, episode seventeen you can get across it there, and as they uh, as they ravaged their way westward, as they came closer and closer to the territory that had been traditionally held by the Nazari Ismaili, they began to lay siege. To these uh, supposedly impregnable assassin fortresses in the Persian mount uh, in the Persian mount- mountains, and after a century and a half of being steadfastly held by the Assassins by the Nizari Ismaili, these fortresses fell to the ever expanding Mongol Empire. In twelve fifty six, Alamut fell, and this led to other Assassin strongholds being lost to the Mongols until finally. Uh, Masyaf itself fell in Syria in 1260. While the assassins did have one last hurrah when they, ca- they recaptured Alamut in, uh, in 1275, their success was very short-lived and within a few months they were eradicated entirely by the Mongols as a real independent political or religious force. Those uh, Nizari Ismaili, those assassins that remained in Syria, joined forces with other, other Muslims, their enmity now long forgotten in the face of this new threat from, from the east, and they attempted to resist the Mongols, and, uh, well, I mean, we all know how that went. But the very last victim of the assassins, the, uh, the, the, the person with whom they closed the account, was the elderly Philip of Montfort, the Lord of Tyre, who was frustrating the loose alliance of Muslims as they fought both Christians and Mongols. Uh, but the, the assassination of Philip of Montfort in 1270 marked the end of the, the assassins' political murders. And... Um, Even if their order of of highly trained, unshakably loyal and ferociously effective assassins is no more, the Ismaili subsect actually has survived through to this very day. Nizari Ismailis represent the biggest proportion of Ismailis worldwide. There are around 15 million Ismaili Muslims throughout the globe. Um, And while obviously there's a lot of other stuff going on with Ismailism, Um, The Order of the Assassins Assassins, is undoubtedly the subsect's most powerful legacy, both politically and historically as well as culturally, even linguistically. Whenever you hear talk of an assassin, whether it's a a real-world political killer or, or a character archetype in entertainment media, it is a reference to these murderous operatives that sought to advance the cause of a small firebrand Muslim subsect in the 12th and 13th century. It is a testament to the fear and the intimidation that the assassins struck into the hearts of their foes, the terrifying, paranoia-inducing reputation that they secured for themselves after scores of public assassinations designed to destabilise the political regimes that opposed them. These truths obviously passed into myth and legend, and from Toledo to Tehran, the stories of the assassins have been passed down through the generations until we have, broadly speaking, lost sight of what really happened in many, in many ways. The historical reality of these people, it might be a bit of a letdown, honestly. You know, the fact that these lurid and fanciful tales aren't true, mostly, is, you know, probably not what you were hoping to hear. But the real story is still one that is worth telling, I think, even if, you know, all it actually does is allow you to, well, actually, all of your mates the next time the, the topic comes up. In any case... The exaggerated stories told by the foes of the assassins over the years has secured their place in our civilisation's cultural legacy long after their final collapse in the year 1275. And today, this merciless sect of killers has been heavily romanticised, influencing everything from literature to film to video games to etymology. All of this, not too bad for a bloke who tricked his way into a mountaintop castle almost a thousand years ago. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Order of Assassins. They say that the truth is stranger than fiction. Not so this week, at at least. So I hope it wasn't too much of a letdown. Uh, Anyway, if you've got a topic you'd like to uh, be explored on the show, why not uh, not send it in? I'd love to hear it. Uh, If you jump on the website, halfoshistory.net, there is a contact form there that you can use to get in touch with the show, as well as links to subscribe, old episodes, da 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 um and also of course a link to the patreon where you can support the show financially thank you very much to the people who do so uh, a couple of new patrons coming in the, in the last week or so and i, I appreciate you uh, very very much thank you for your continued support as indeed uh, all the other old ones who've been around forever it's it's great to have you on board and thanks for just having a listen as well. Even if you're not a patron member, it's still great to have your company each week as we uh, as we unpick something like this. So uh, cheers very much for being along for it. Anyway, we're going to close out the show, as ever, with a question posed on Reddit. This one is a bloody good one. Uh, to do with assassinations, of course, it comes to us from Redditor Govolo, who asks, If what you don't know can't hurt you, how do people get assassinated?